0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: When we're separated from the world, what do we lose? And what do we gain? I'm Constance Grady. I write about culture and I'm the host of the Vox Book Club. And this week, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Imagine that you're standing in the middle of a room. It's enormous, made of marble, and full of statues. You can hear water rushing all around you. Outside this room, there's another room just like it, only this one is flooded you can see fish swimming around the statues and seaweed growing around the statues' feet. Outside that room, there's another marble room filled with statues. This one has birds. They're flying all around using strands of that seaweed to build nests in the statues' heads. Now, imagine that these rooms go on and on forever, in all directions. There's nothing in the world but this enormous, flooded house, the statues, the water, the fish, the birds, and you. That's the world Susanna Clarke imagines in her novel Piranesi. It's the story of a man trapped in this world of the flooded house. And it's the story of how he is able to find beauty in this world where he is locked up, completely alone. Almost. Almost. That's a scenario that feels especially meaningful in this strange, liminal pandemic time. A lot of us were looking forward to a year of freedom after the vaccine, and instead we find ourselves stuck in this halfway point. Not quite in lockdown, and not quite out either. So I wanted to talk with Susanna about how she built this fantasy world of isolation. A world that is brutal but also beautiful. I wanted to know, if we're forced into living apart from everything and everyone, what can we get out of the experience? Today's episode of Vox Conversations is a taping of a live event before a virtual audience I hosted for the Vox Book Club. For this special conversation, I talked with Susanna Clark about building the world of Piranesi, And about why it feels so nourishing to read at this strange moment in time. Susanna, thank you so much for joining us.
2: It's a great pleasure to be here. Wonderful.
1: So, Susanna, I wanted to ask you... First of all, to start off, this is a book that's so much about isolation and retreating from the world, um, which I think a lot of us have been dealing with sort of at various levels for by this point the better part of two years. Um, and I know you yourself took quite a hiatus from public life in between the time when you released Jonathan Strange in 2004 um, and then releasing Piranesi last year. Um, I know you were struggling with health issues and and things like that then. But how did that time away influence the way you approached this book?
2: I think it definitely did have an influence. It was always my intention to write about a man, about two men, really, in a huge house in which there were tides. And I originally had that idea, I guess, in my 20s, sometime around the mid 1980s, I think. So the idea came long before lockdown or any Mm. ideas like that or long before I became ill. But I think having been in a sort of isolation of my own for many, many years, I think it did influence the book, but I think it kind of influenced it in a way, I realised after a long time that there were some positive things, some positive aspects to slowing down, to being on your own. Perhaps not many, but there were some. And they seem most relevant to Piranesi's situation. Mm-hmm. Sort of round about 10 years ago, I was visiting my aunt, who lived not far away from where I am now, And she had been ill with heart problems all her life. And the last decade of her life, she really had to stay in bed. If she stood up, her blood pressure dropped to such an extent that she was in danger of dying. So she couldn't stand up. But after she died, someone gave me a little diary of hers and she had written about the tree outside her window. And I mean, it wasn't anything very startling that she'd said, Mm. but she sort of kept a record of what was happening to this tree. And at one point, a wind came and blew off some of the leaves. And she was obviously quite concerned about this. There is still ways to connect to the outside world. And in fact, some of the outside world, I think, comes closer when you are forced to slow down. And I think Mm. that was the sort of thing I wanted to pick up with Piranesi.
1: Uh, There's that lovely little section where a leaf comes into the house and Piranesi picks it up and is asking, do trees exist? And he is is not sure, but he likes the leaf. (laughs) And I wanted to ask a little about Piranesi as a character, um, if I can call him that, since that is not his name. Yes,
2: it's what I call him. It it seems a useful way to Mm -hmm. distinguish him. It's a tag, sort of. Yes. A couple of people have called him Myself. Mm -hmm. which is sort of the way he refers to himself. But I always call him Piranesi.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair enough. And there's something that is so sort of instantly pure and and really lovable about him. You know, as soon as I was a few chapters in, I was just very defensive of him, which feels sort of necessary as you read, um, because Piranesi only knows one other person, this man he calls the other. And the other will just show up in the house on a pretty regular basis and then vanish again. And Piranesi thinks that the other is his friend. But as you read, you can see that the other thinks Piranesi is his slave. And it's just, it's so infuriating. Um, And it really made me want to protect Piranesi from this just awful, awful man who is taking advantage of him um, in ways that he's almost too pure to understand. So... How did you think about developing the sort of the sweetness of that
2: character? To be honest, it kind of came as a surprise to me. I think in the early versions that I wrote in my 20s, there's barely enough text to say what the character was intended to be. Mm -hmm. But when I started to write it seriously, in earnest, I imagined that he would be quite a cross person quite a scathing person in some ways, because why wouldn't you if you're sort of having to live this quite hard life? And I wrote it like that for a while and it just didn't hang together somehow. Mm. It just did not work. And I can't remember how I came to the idea that he was happy there. The most important thing about him was that he felt this huge connection to the world in which he found itself. He felt that the world and he were almost not separate, that they they were Mm. kind of on a continuum and that he's just slotted in there so perfectly and that he was happy. And that influenced the rest of his characteristics and his behaviour towards the other. And once I'd realised that, the book sort of took off. Mm -hmm. It began to make sense to me. But I was really quite surprised. This hadn't been where I was heading at all. So I don't really know where his sweet character came from. I know that after I'd sent the book off to the Mm -hmm. publishers and they were editing and so forth, and I was no longer writing the book, I did feel... Bit bereft. He was a lovely person to have around. He was a lovely Mm. presence. And I remember going out one morning very early. You have to walk down my drive to get to the sort of road, and then you can look to where the sun is rising. And there was a beautiful, beautiful sunrise that morning. And I remember thinking, oh, he'd have loved this. (laughs) He would have really loved it. Because I kind of worked out that in the house, he probably couldn't see sunrises per se. He would sort of see the effects and the light blooming, but because the house was in the way, he wouldn't actually see the sun. And mm-hmm. I just thought he would just find this so beautiful. And I kind of felt a pang for, yes, that he'd been sort of, he'd had to leave me. Oh,
1: but you still have a little inner Piranese, eh, maybe.
2: Yes, yes. I hope so. I hope so.
1: And then it's so striking that he loves the house so much because when you first start reading, it's just it's so empty and there's no softness to it. There's these passages where he gets swept off his feet by the tides and is dashed against the marble statues, and then he responds with so much affection. You know, he lands in the hands of a giant statue and he thanks the house for catching him. So you sort of find yourself loving the house almost specifically because you love Piranesi. So. How did you think about balancing those two aspects of the house, the brutality of it and the beauty of it, and sort of making it both a threat and a refuge?
2: That didn't really occur to me. I mean, now that you sort of phrase it that way, obviously, that's a contrast. That's a dichotomy. But it didn't seem to me that Mm. way when I was writing. I was kind of consciously influenced by... A colleague of C.S. Lewis's, one of the Inklings, who's not terribly well known, called Mm. Owen Barfield. And he had a strong influence on both Lewis and Tolkien. And one of the things that Barfield was very interested in was how ancient peoples thought, how they saw the world. And he very much thought that ancient peoples did not really see a difference between the outside world and the inside. They didn't have this strong sense of individuality that they did. They felt that they were on a continuum with the world and with the gods. And so I've always been very interested in this idea. And it was a bit of that idea mm. that I, I wanted to get to with Piranesi. It's actually called original participation. That's what Barfield called it. It's a very interesting theory. He thinks that you can sort of find relics and fossils of it in language, that language contains these earlier ways of thinking.
1: Oh, that's really fascinating. Now I will need to read that. (laughs) Uh, And I wanted to ask as well, since we're talking about the Inklings and some of the ideas you were approaching with this book, what were the big references you're thinking about as you go in. There's obviously so much of C.S. Lewis there and it also feels like tons of Borges. I keep thinking of it as like if Borges went to the Wood Between the Worlds in Narnia and just sort of wandered around for a little bit. What
2: were the the ideas you were thinking about as you went into I, it? I think you've absolutely got them. Borges was the starting point. When I was in my 20s, I lived in London. And I was reading the short fiction. Well, he didn't write any long fiction, did he? Um, I was reading the short fiction of of Borges, Jorge Luis Borges. And bizarrely enough, there was an evening class going on in London, exactly on this topic, on the fiction of Borges. In those days, I think you could sort of do an evening class on almost anything in London. And I found this fascinating. I loved his strange sort of jewel-like stories and the fantastic worlds, and particularly the world which is only a library. It Mm. isn't anything else, it's just a library. And also the House of Asterion, which is a story about the Minotaur and the original Labyrinth. Mm. And so I I think what I was doing when I first sat down and, and tried to write about this vast house with oceans was to create a Borgesian world, but I didn't know how to turn that into a story, Mm -hmm. hence the sort of long gap. So it was Borges, and then as I began to write it seriously, I sort of thought about the situation Piranesi finds himself in, whether he's aware of it or not. And the obvious reference then was The Magician's Nephew mm. by C.S. Lewis. And I began to realise also that in, in The Magician's Nephew, there are these two other worlds. There's, well, there's the wood between the worlds, and then there's also charn, mm. which is empty and ruinous and has fantastic architecture and the two children who find themselves there explore it and they go from courtyard to courtyard in the silence. And it was quite, I think for Lewis, it was quite a threatening place. Mm -hmm. It was meant to represent something quite dark. But I always really rather liked it. And I kind of wanted to go there. And there was a point in my illness in the 2000s, I guess, when I actually had quite bad social anxiety and found Mm. walking through streets with other people quite difficult but I would imagine that I was in Charn or a world very like Charn and that there were actually no people it was just Mm. me and the architecture and that soothed me and calmed me quite a lot as it kind of calms Piranesi just to be in his world
1: Piranesi is a book that explores themes so central to the experience of the pandemic for so many of us, which is why it's amazing to me that Susanna Clark conceived of the idea decades before 2020. So what was it like to release this book into a world that had suddenly, unexpectedly, become so ready to receive it? I'll ask Susanna
0: after a short break. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures. The assembly isn't what they said it was or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed, and it ships straight to your door for free. Great Area listeners can get fifteen percent off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's Burrow, B U R R O W dot com slash box for fifteen percent off. Burrow.com slash box.
1: There feels like there's something very meditative about reading this book. You know, it almost feels like as I was reading, it was almost an extended prayer or like a mindfulness exercise. I think because Piranesi understands himself very clearly to be in communion with the world that he's living in, right? He calls himself the beloved child of the house. Um, There's all of this calmness and this interest in becoming part of the world that is around you. So, It's such a strange coincidence that this book emerges in the midst of this pandemic when so many people are so much more isolated than they have ever been before. So what was the experience like of releasing this book out into the world at this moment when people seem especially ready for a story about being sort of all by yourself in the world?
2: It was very odd the way those two things sort of aligned. And I have I mean, my only experience of it is that it was kind of surreal and a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, two things. One is that I suppose people began to see lockdown and isolation in different ways reflected in quite a few books that were around at that time, as is right, I think. Books are not just one thing. They can reflect all sorts of aspects of where we are. The other thing, I suppose, was that lockdown, and this is just a personal thing, is that lockdown actually had the opposite effect on me. Mm -hmm. I suddenly found that my world opened up because my friends were suddenly there on a computer screen, which they hadn't been before. So suddenly I was doing a lot more social things and talking to a lot more people. I think that's the experience of quite a few people suffering with chronic illness, that lockdown worked the opposite way for them than it did for everyone else.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting that one of the things lockdown did is it made the world smaller, but it also sort of collapsed distances. You know, I found myself talking to friends from out of town in ways that I hadn't in a long time because suddenly it was just as easy to talk to them as anyone else that I knew.
2: Yes, absolutely. I'm in Derbyshire, which is sort of the middle of England, but a bit towards the north, and I was suddenly in contact with a lot of people in Cambridge, where I used to live, which is at the sort of eastern side of of England. And suddenly they were as close to me as people in my own village. It was it was very odd.
1: And I think one of the things that is so important about Piranesi and that makes it, I think, especially apt for a lockdown book is the book does not shy away from the idea that what the other did by placing Piranesi in the house was just this incredibly, just viciously awful thing to do, and that he Piranesi is able to make something meaningful and profound out of his own essentially kidnapping it comes from something within him rather than like oh it's being done for his own good you know that sort of condescending message people sometimes would say about lockdown like well this will be your chance to make something of yourself and create something for the world so. What do you think it is in Paranese that enables him to find something of value within the house when other people can't?
2: That's a good question. I think I see it slightly differently. Mm -hmm. There doesn't seem to be anything particular about the person he was before Mm -hmm. that would make you think he would handle this better. I suppose I think of it as a sort of grace It's that he connects with the house and the house enlarges him. Mm -hmm. It's what he believes. And I do think he's a lot more accurate about this world than other people. He may be an unreliable narrator in some ways because he hasn't got all the information that the reader has and that other characters have. But I think in terms of understanding this world, I think he is the source to go to and he feels that he has been educated by this world mm-hmm. by the house and that his mind heart soul have been expanded by the communion with the world this communion that he feels so strongly so i would tend to to sort of turn it round that way rather than be something purely inherent in himself mm-hmm. I think there are hints that other characters have had a similar relationship Mm -hmm. with the house. Certainly, I would think Sylvia D'Agostino has. So he's not the first. Mm. And in a way, James Ritter as well, I think, although he wasn't able to explore it or become self-sufficient in the way that Piranesi is. But I think it's not a unique thing, Mm -hmm. Piranesi's reaction to the house. But the other is a different personality, and he's, he's very defended against things coming in from the outside, I think. Yeah, his voice is so jarringly
1: separate from Piranesi's as you read it, because Piranesi's is in that sort of heightened, almost, this book, of course, is set in the present, unlike Jonathan Strange, but he does seem to use sort of a regency vocabulary at times, especially… <laughs> with the way he capitalizes and as you're reading the Piranese sections you sort of don't exactly know where you are you're floating in time and then the other comes in and you're like oh it's the present like that is a very specifically contemporary voice did you think about developing the the
2: contrast between those two yes absolutely I think I'm always very comfortable leaving out contractions I don't really know why it I suppose I got used to it because in the regency era and well into the 19th century polite people didn't use contractions they were sort of looked upon as a form of slang and a bit you know it's not what we do if you're middle class or upper class mm. and I somehow I just got used to it and I also I do feel there's a sort of child likeness that comes mm. in when you take out contractions, a sort of almost innocence. You sort of go back to, I don't know, a slightly earlier way of being, not just go back to the 19th century, but somehow you go back in your own life. I don't know why it is. I don't know why it is, but I'm very comfortable. And it seems to me there are things you can do when you make people speak when your characters speak in this very simple, almost naive way. So yes, there was that. And there was also the capitalization, which seemed to me like well, he's saying everything he capitalizes, he thinks is hugely important. Mm-hmm. And also everything he capitalizes, he thinks of as having a life of its own. It mm-hmm. it may be strictly speaking, inanimate, but not to him. It has a soul, it has purpose, it has meaning. But it's also true that the capitalisation sort of, it makes these words have a, it gives them a simplicity, an importance, but also a simplicity, like painting in primary colours, something like that. It's a bit naive, but it's not just naive. It's sort of, I don't know, It somehow kind of opens things up Mm -hmm. somehow. I always think that it's very difficult for the writer to explain what the writer is doing. Mm-hmm. The person who sits and writes sort of doesn't think consciously necessarily about what she's doing and then I come along afterwards and have to kind of deduce it from what I remember. I'm not sure I always get it right. Mm-hmm. Um but the person who just sat there and wrote it down isn't actually in a way here anymore. So Mm -hmm. I just have to do my best. Just come in after the fact to translate it out.
1: Yeah. So as the book ends, Piranesi has to make his choice between the house and his previous world, our world. And after he chooses to leave the house for however long he does, he's no longer the same Piranesi that we've come to know. So how does changing the place and the way that he's been living how does that reshape his identity?
2: I think we're all kind of products of the world in which we live, mm-hmm. products of our upbringing, products of whether life is easy for us or hard for us or you know all of these things come together to form identity. So I think probably going from one world to literally another world would actually have quite a big impact. And I think Piranesi, as strong as he is, he's never had to deal with money. He's never had to deal with an overwhelming number of people. Mm-hmm. He, At one point, I think he says, are there 76 people in your world or something? And he thinks that's a ridiculous number. You know, there can't possibly be 70. Like such a gotcha question he's set up. Yes, exactly. So... I think at that point, somebody else has to arise to kind of deal with money and mobile phones and and just the overwhelmingness of this world. And that person can remember, does remember how you use money and how you use a phone and how you use an ATM and all of those sorts of things. So I think it's quite natural that Piranesi should sink down a bit, but he doesn't sink very far. He's Mm. still expressing his opinions on everything, which I think is kind of cute. Um, Mm. And I think if this person were to go back to the world of the house, Piranesi would would very quickly become the dominant personality again.
1: All right. Well, I think we are almost ready to go to audience Q&A. But before we do, I have to ask you the question we ask all our guests, which is, what are you reading right now?
2: I'm reading Patricia Lockwood's No One Is Talking About This, which is fabulous and astonishing. And kind of you end up sort of seeing the world in a Patricia Lockwood way after you've read just a few sentences. You also end up sort of trying to write like her, which is quite interesting. I mean, just naturally you end up doing that.
1: I would very much like to read a Susanna Clarke take on a Patricia Lockwood sentence. I feel like that would be an experience. (laughs) The central figure in Piranesi is an embodiment of an ancient idea. The idea that there is no firm division between our inner experience and the experience of the external world. Is this similar to how we might think of a religious experience? This is one of the questions put to Susanna Clark by a member of our live audience. We'll find out Susanna's answer to this and to other questions from the audience of this Vox Book Club event after one more quick break.
3: Support for the Gray Area comes from Greenlight If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free
0: Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: So I will turn now to some of these audience questions. Hester says, at the end of the book, do you feel that Piranese is able to continue his sense of original participation? Is this perhaps similar to the
2: continuation
1: of a religious faith as one grows older?
2: Um, yes. In actual fact, I think that's a very good question. In actual fact, Barfield himself didn't think that we could go back to original participation. He felt that we'd been individuals too long. And that we actually had to consciously recover some of the virtues of original participation. And, and I, I can't remember, he gave that another name, which I don't remember what it was. But he he thought that being an individual had many, I mean, it wasn't that he was against it, he thought, there was, you know, this was a hugely rich thing, which had led to all kinds of knowledge and philosophy and things. But there was a way to kind of recover some of the elements of original participation, but in a conscious way. So I think that's really where this person, who isn't quite Matthew Rose Sorensen, and who isn't quite Piranesi, is sort—I hope—kind of heading. And I think the last scene kind of hints at that. He's sort of looking at this world, but in a in a similar sort of way to the way Piranesi saw the house. I don't think it's necessarily just like how you might take how a religious faith might develop or a spiritual journey, but that's definitely one of the things it's like. Yeah, absolutely.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: So we are looking at audience questions and Ivan says... As Piranesi adapts to the house, he gains deep knowledge about the natural world by paying attention to the tide, learning to fish, watching the birds, etc. He asks, Do you think these skills are part of the secret knowledge of ancient people that the other was seeking? So for those who aren't as familiar with the book, let me just quickly explain. So the reason Piranesi has been placed in this world by the Other to begin with is to help the Other on his quest for the secret knowledge that he thinks ancient societies used to have and which he thinks is now held in the house. So the Other thinks this will give him the power of flight and control over lesser minds and things like that. And Ivan's asking if the Other just misunderstood the nature of the knowledge, and if the skills Nese learned actually fulfilled the other's quest.
2: I hadn't thought of that. I, In a way, I never quite settled with myself what the great and secret knowledge was, mm-hmm. um, other than what Laurence Arne's sales, the prophet says about it, which is that it it is knowledge that has left our world and sort of hollowed out a place another place another world it just sort of flowed out of our world and created this so i think probably piranesi's idea that the statues sort of are maybe images left behind by this knowledge flowing but but that's quite an interesting idea that i think the way the knowledge that Piranesi has about how to look after himself and the natural world—it's not so much that that's part of the great and secret knowledge, but it is part of the attitude
1: mm-hmm.
2: that Piranesi has to the house, and which enables him to understand the house—a sort of humble attitude, an attitude of. I'm here to learn what you will teach me rather than I want you to teach me what I want to know kind of thing. So yes, I think the other is definitely missing out by not paying attention to what, by despising the sort of attitude Piranesi has, because I think that's the attitude that helps him understand the house.
1: Um, We have a question from Adam that Never occurred to me that I'm interested to hear your take on. He asks, Is
2: this a climate change parable it y- yes, yes, and p- m- <laughs> yes, I think it's consciously it was about taking a different attitude, showing what a person in another world with a different attitude to that world than the attitude humanity has taken for the last 200 oddish mm. years an attitude of paying attention and an attitude of friendship, quite simply, an attitude of being in conversation with the world and listening to what the world has to say as well as just, you know, this is what humanity has to say and these are the only interesting voices. So... Yeah, I think that was something that I wanted to set up. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that idea. The sort of the living in harmony
1: as opposed to utilitarian setup.
2: Yes, living in harmony and listening to and paying attention to and not assuming that we have the answers because we're human, that kind of thing. And we've had quite a few questions about the physical space of
1: the house. Um, Hattie asks, do you have a clear mental image of what the labyrinthine world of Piranese looks like at its most distant edges, or do you prefer to preserve some mystery for
2: yourself and avoid fleshing out the entire realm? I think if I thought about it, I could have a wonderful time sort of inventing the far distant halls. But in a way, I think that would be a bit um, self-indulgent on my part. I think I didn't want to know my knowledge and Piranesi's knowledge to be too out of joint with each Mm. other. And he's the expert on the house. So I wanted him to kind of, in a way, I almost wanted him to tell me, which sometimes characters will do. Not always, but they will sometimes. So, yeah, I mapped out, not really like an actual map, but, in a diagrammatic way, the halls and vestibules that surround the first vestibule, the bit that Piranesi knows better, just so I could sort of see how the numbering might work. But it was only those few halls. after that, I've no idea.
1: Uh, we have a very interesting question from Liz. She says, a recent discovery is that our brains get washed with cerebrospinal fluid while we sleep. There's even a video of it on Boston University's website. It's kind of like the halls in Piranesi.
2: Were you thinking of this when you wrote the book? I wasn't thinking of it because this is the first time I've heard it, but it's very fascinating. Um, I don't really know where the water imagery comes from. It just mm. felt, well, as I say, this was something that was in this story in the five or seven pages that I wrote way back in my 20s. And I really don't know where it comes from, this watery image. Mm -hmm. But certainly I did want the house to have a sort of strongly dreamlike aspect Mm -hmm. that it should feel familiar yet very strange at the same time in the way that dreams do. And apparently a lot of people do dream that they are walking through a huge possibly endless building and finding bits of it they never knew were there before. So it's not an uncommon thing to dream. Well, that's fascinating. I wonder if we somehow pick up on the
1: sound of the, of the fluid and that has something to do with it. Very odd. Uh, Ray asks, why the labyrinth in myth or concept as the setting and structure of your novel? How do we see the mythological archetypes of Daedalus, Theseus, the Minotaur, Icarus, the Athenian tribute, Ariadne, etc., as existing in a spectrum with your
2: own characters and plot developments? I think, um, as I say, Borges wrote a story called The House of Asterion, which is Mm. a story about the Minotaur, from the Minotaur's point of view. And as far as I remember, I hadn't read this story since my 20s. And then after I finished Piranesi, I read it again. And I was astonished that there were all these echoes in the Borka story, like there were dead remains apparently just lying around in the rooms. And I, I didn't remember that at all. And he even has a way of speaking. Well, obviously, I'm reading him in an English translation, but he even has a way of speaking, which is not unlike Pyrenees's. And it, this astonished me. So I think the original Minotaur story and the idea of a labyrinth is very strong mm. in there. I hadn't really thought about Daedalus at all or his son, whose name I have just forgotten. Icarus. Icarus. I hadn't thought about that. I'd have to give that further thought, I think. There is something
1: perhaps in the way Piranesi is able to devise all of his little inventions, but...
2: I think I would probably, if I were going to equate any character with the Icarus character, it would be the Mm -hmm. other, that kind of overarching ambition Without really looking what he's doing. Mm-hmm. That I think is there. But it is, I mean, a lot of labyrinths have fed into this. One mm-hmm. of them would definitely be in Ursula Gwynne's Earthsea stories, The Tombs of Atuan. There's the most fabulous labyrinth in there. And you get a map, so you can go around it by yourself as well. Oh, that book just
1: embedded in my mind when I was very young and did strange things there. Okay, so we have a few people asking about the parallels between the house in Piranesi and the Raven King's Roads um, in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, your very wonderful book from 2004. So the King's Roads in that book are the paths from the regular world into fairyland, and they're described as great stone halls that lead off in every direction. Um, so they seem in some ways very similar to the house in Piranesi. And
2: people are wondering if you saw any connections there. I think the house actually predates the Raven King's roads. But I think both of them connect to my love of labyrinths, connect to my love of Piranesi, the artist, Jean Bantista Piranesi, who did the etchings of the prisons and the etchings of Roman ruins and things. I think all those, they're kind of influenced by the same stuff that I'm fascinated by, but I don't think there's a sort of, so there's a sort of vertical connection up from mm. this stuff, but there is, I don't see a sort of horizontal connection, as it were.
1: The connections to the works you're referencing are so interesting to me because so many of the source texts. Treat these worlds as sort of monstrous, horrible things like Lewis with Charn or like Borges' library is so full of meaning that it becomes meaningless and all of the residents go mad looking for it. And then in Piranese, it all sort of becomes transcendent and lovely. Was that something that you were sort of looking to subvert as you went in or is it just, did it sort of magically emerge?
2: I think it's just a reflection of the fact that I think I found. When I was ill, I found these things both fascinating and oppressive. I both wanted to go there and I felt oppressed by them. I wanted to go there because there was peace and solitude and all all the things that Piranesi finds and calm and the sort of idea of travelling a labyrinth but knowing exactly where you're going, Mm -hmm. of having that key to it and being able to explore it by yourself. I think that's kind of wonderful. But there's also this kind of oppression of, I can't get out. I mean, I think at several points I have expressed to people that I felt my illness itself was like a labyrinth. Mm -hmm. You know, I could wander its paths, but I couldn't actually get out. So there may be something in that.
1: Yeah. And I think it's so lovely that Piranesi at the end is able to find a way that he can go in and out of his own choice, which is what we are probably all hoping for in the face of Delta. Yes. All right. Well, I think we are just about at time. So Susanna, thank you so much for
2: joining us. This was so wonderful. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.
1: Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Check out Breakmaster Cylinder's collaboration with Zardulu, the internet art wizard. Great stuff. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement. We want to hear that, too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back on Monday for a brand new episode.